Okay, Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Let me read the passage and then we'll get started. So Paul here says, See with what large letters I am writing with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which or by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So here you have it, the final few verses of the book of Galatians. Last time we just looked at a relatively small passage, verses 6 through 10, uh, which kind of completes a thought that starts in chapter 6, verse 1, in which Paul there uh, exhorts the Galatians to uh, share all the good things that they have with those who teach them the word. And and remember, this is in, in context with Uh, those who have come in and were teaching error, who were teaching a false gospel. So for those who teach the true gospel, it is right and it is good that they should share all good things with the one who teaches. Then he goes on to talk about sowing and reaping, sowing to the spirit or sowing to the flesh, and then you reap the same. Uh, This principle uh, we looked at very briefly, but the idea of sowing and reaping is usually reserved for things that are baked into creation. God has sort of worked into his creation certain consequences that follow from certain actions uh, so that judgment um, does not necessarily always have to come directly from God. Um, Romans 1 is a good example of that. When he said, you know, it says that the wrath of God is being revealed and it's revealed in God giving them over to their sin. And you see that phrase three times in Romans 1. He gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. In other words, as they continue in their sinful lifestyle, they reap to the flesh. They reap corruption. They reap death. So there's this kind of idea that there is baked into creation this uh, consequences to our actions. Proverbs is full of that. So Paul just brings that lesson to bear upon them. If you sow to the flesh, well, you're just going to reap corruption. And it doesn't necessarily only mean that you're sowing sinful actions. It could also mean that you're just working in this world, that you are, that you are working and, and, and building upon that foundation of Christ with wood, straw, stubble, things that are burned up in the fire when this creation is dissolved at the end of the age. In other words, you are pursuing things that are, have no eternal value. You don't have an eternal mindset. So, yes, it could be sowing to the flesh as in works of the flesh that you saw in um, chapter 5 in the latter verses there, the sinful uh, attitudes, the sinful lifestyle, but it could also just be sowing to the flesh as in just sowing to this age. Christians, they get caught up in, in 
you know, trying to, I don't know, I mean, just think of any, you know, think of things like the moral majority, trying, trying to, to, you know, promote a Christian morality in this world through not the gospel, okay? <laughs> you know, when you're pursuing pursuits like, well, we need, to, we need to get the levers of political power so we can promote a Christian worldview and we could put the Ten Commandments up on state houses and, and in classrooms. It's like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to the Ten Commandments being, being, you know, publicly posted, but that's not going to change the hearts of anybody. You know, that's not going to say, oh, wow, now the unbeliever is going to say, well, I better become a Christian. Um, these are things that are, seem good, seem to have wisdom, but they don't. The church has a mission, and that mission is to make disciples. Um, and as Christians working in and through the church, that, that's our goal. Now, as Christians in the world, yeah, we work to make the world a better place. We should vote our conscience. We should be kind to one another. We should show love to one another. Um, but recognize that these are not things that have eternal value in the sense of trying to retake our culture and things like that. And then he closes in verse 10 that we should always do good, that we should not tire in doing good, in fact. Let us not grow weary in doing good, and then we should always do good to everyone. And then he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So that notion that as a church... We are a family, and we are a family that, you know, God has ordained that, we, you know, this, the membership to this family, right? You know, I like to think that the church is the one institution that, you know, given any other choice, you might not necessarily associate with people in the church, right? You would associate with people that you live next to, maybe people you went to school with, people you went to work with, but the church is, is built, you know, by God, from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? And, and you might have something in common with something, you know, someone in the church, you know, you're, you might have a common faith, but you might not have common desires and common uh, goals outside of the faith. So uh, we ought to do good to everyone in the household of God, the household of faith, especially to those. And that's, that's how the world then sees that we are his disciples. That's what Jesus says. They will know you're my disciples when they see your love for one another. So that's, that's the last passage. And now here we look at Paul's final words to the Galatians in verses 11 through 18. And it's really just two main parts. There's a third point. Well, the third point is just my final thoughts in the book of Galatians. But really you have a final warning or final warnings. You have a final encouragement. And then, a, you know, and then there's a benediction at the end. So Paul here is going to take these last verses and he's using these then to make sure he impresses upon the Galatian churches the points he has been making throughout the letter. You know, what, what do they tell you when you're writing something? You know, he says, well, say what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you said at the end, right? So it's kind of what he's doing here. He's telling them what he said at the end. And that's what we're going to see here. So Paul closes this letter. He closes Galatians with a final warning against legalism and a final encouragement to boast in the cross of Christ. If you're going to boast in anything, boast in that. That's what he's going to make the point of. He's going to say, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in the cross of Christ. Don't boast in your flesh. That's what the legalists do. That's what the, the Judaizers do. That's what those who are troubling you do. They boast in their flesh. 
So that's the theme there. Paul closes the letter with a final warning against legalism and a final encouragement to boast in the cross of Christ. So first we're going to look at the final warnings, verses 11 through 13. And while this passage serves as the final words that Paul says here, there's still some good meat here. All right, you know, uh, a lot of times people don't pay too much attention to the closing parts of the letters. Usually when they're saying, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, tell so-and-so I said hi, and so on and so forth. You know, you kind of tend to skip over those um, near the end. But there's some meat here still left to go. There's some good material in these verses. But it's interesting how Paul begins in verse 11, where he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. When you're like, well, what do you mean, Paul? I mean, I thought you wrote the letter, right? It says, you know, the book begins, Paul, an apostle. Well, I've said this before, and I'm sure you've heard it before I came here, is that Paul often made use of secretaries. There's a fancy word for it called amanuensis. I don't even know where that word comes from. And it just means secretary. So I just say, why don't you just say secretary? (laughs) Why say the word that I have no idea what it means and just say the word that I know what it means, okay? Someone who dictates, someone who, who takes dictation, someone who wrote the letter for him. Now, there's a couple of reasons why this may have happened. Oftentimes, when Paul was writing a prison epistle, he was more than likely chained to a Roman officer, so he probably didn't have the freedom of motion to write. So the letters like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, they may have actually been dictated because Paul physically couldn't write the letter because he was chained to a Roman soldier, more than likely. What about Galatians? This is way before he was in prison. Well, this might lend credence to the notion that some think that Paul had some serious eye problems. Um, If you look at verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, if you remember there, He's talking, uh, I'll I'll just start in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Excuse me. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So people read that, commentators read that, and they say, Paul must have had an eye problem. That's, that's the ailment that he had. I mean, I'm, okay. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a reasonable conclusion based on what we see here. Um, so perhaps Paul is dictating this letter because of his eye problem, and he couldn't see very well. Maybe he just had bad eyesight. Maybe he needed like some Harry Carey glasses, you know, the Coke bottle glasses with the real thick lenses so he could see, you know, whatever the case may be. Whatever the case may be, Paul here is signing on at the end of this letter. So he's more than likely dictated everything up to verse 10 of chapter 6, and then he tells the secretary, give me the pen. I want to finish this letter in my own hand with big letters so that I can see them and so they can see them. Right? Doesn't this call to mind, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, John Hancock, right? When he signed the Declaration of Independence, he said, I want to write this in huge letters so that King George can see it without his spectacles, right? And he signs his name, 
in real big letters there. So Paul's like, I want to make sure they read this. And his final word here is about the troublers. The troublers, the Judaizers. And it amounts to the fact that they are people pleasers. Look at verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So these guys, the the troublers, the people who have come in preaching another gospel, they're there, they are there, to make a showing in the flesh. They are there promoting circumcision so that they themselves would not be persecuted. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Where Paul says, but if, brothers, I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. It's the same thing he's saying here. They are preaching circumcision so that the offense of the cross will be removed. So that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's kind of what reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6 really the first 18 verses, after telling them that they need to be perfect as their Heavenly Father is perfect, after telling them that unless their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about their religious practice. So in chapter 5, he attacks their understanding of the law then when he gets to chapter 6, he starts to attack their practice, particularly prayer, fasting, and giving. And I'm not going to read all of those verses, 1 through 18, but just a few. Um, Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So in other words, what... Whatever the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, it was to be seen by men. So they made a big spectacle of it, right? Um, Think about what Jesus says later on in the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels where the the Pharisees were giving, and this is the story about the widow's mite, you know, and they were giving, and they put a lot of coins in there. You know, it's sort of like, you know, they didn't need to put all those coins. It's like if you take your coin jar, right, which is filled with nickels and pennies, right, and, and you go up and you kind of dump it in there. Well, it sounds like a lot of money because there's a lot of clanking and, and clinging going on there. But really, you know, Jesus says they're not giving out of their, they're not giving from their heart. They're just giving out of their excess. So here Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others. And he says, he talks about those who give. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do. Can you imagine that? You know, I'm about to, I'm about to give to the needy. You know, (laughs) walking down with their bag of money. And they're blowing trumpets like, oh, they're about to give to the needy. Um, That's just weird. That they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And when your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. Then he goes on to pray. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others. In other words, do not let your show of religion be just that, a show, so that people see it. Your, your religious practice, your religious activity, needs to be done sincerely from the heart. And if you're doing it sincerely, you don't care who knows, you don't care who sees. But if, you, if, if it's all a show, then of course you care who knows. Of course you care who sees. Later on, Matthew 23, just a couple of verses from that long chapter. He says in Matthew 23, 5, again, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, right? What do they do? Well, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. A phylactery was, if I'm not mistaken, like a little thing that showed the law on it, and they made it huge, and, and their tassels on their gowns were large. Everything they did was to be seen by others, to be noticed in verse 28 of chapter 23, so you also outwardly appear righteous, again, to the Pharisees, to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So their show was that, oh, they're righteous, but inside they are hypocrites and full of unrighteousness. That's what Paul's saying here about these troublers. They want to make a good showing in you. They want to preach circumcision so that they can appear righteous to those in Jerusalem, so that they can avoid the cross, of, uh, the, the, the scandal of the cross. And that's the thing, right? We talked about this often. The cross brings a scandal. It's a scandal. Why? Well, I mean, if you're looking at it from a Jewish perspective, and, you know, Jesus is proclaiming to be the Messiah, and the Messiah dies on a cross, that's scandalous. Why is it scandalous? Because if you died on a tree... You were cursed according to the law of Moses. Curses everyone who dies on a tree. And to them, the Messiah was supposed to be a great king figure, a son of David, the new king. To have him die at the hands of the Romans does not seem like something that they would want to follow. So it's, it's a scandal. And again, note that phrase there that he says, a, showing, a good showing in the flesh, verse 12 of course, we've talked about this before. This is Paul's reference to the flesh-spirit paradigm that he likes to, to uh, use in all of his letters. This is works of the flesh and the law that have no heavenly value. They want to appear holy and pious, but it's all flashy and fleshly works. And they're boasting in those things which cannot please God. They're boasting in their flesh. They're boasting in a mark on the body. So verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So they force them, right? They compel them to be circumcised. And then they themselves who are circumcised, they don't even keep the law. But they have you be circumcised so they may boast. You know, it's like a mark on their belt, right? <laughs> it's like, look, I've, I've, I've won another convert. 
So they compel circumcision, and they, thus they d- d- destroy the freedom that the Galatians had in Christ, right? That's why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are free from that law. That law, I mean, that, all of chapter 3, all of chapter 4 was showing how the law has no uh, bearing on your righteousness. The law cannot make you righteous. Putting that mark in your flesh does not mean you are righteous. It's hypocrisy to think that. It's foolish to think that. And what you do is you destroy freedom. You destroy freedom. Remember chapter 2, verse 3. It says, even Titus, was, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. And then chapter 2, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you remember when we looked at that, it's like Peter, or Paul is saying to Peter, it's like, look, if you're going to act like a Jew, it's like you're... We're, you know, we're both Jewish, and we're both awful Jews. <laughs> we ourselves cannot be Jewish enough you know, to keep the law. It's like, why are we putting that yoke then on Gentiles? Why are we telling them to do something that we ourselves cannot keep? An open rebuke of Peter. It's the whole thing about what the council of Jerusalem was in Acts 15. Um, more than likely, what was happening here in Galatians... Um, is what prompted the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where Paul goes and and lays it before them. Because supposedly these guys came from Jerusalem, supposedly they came from James, and Paul goes and is like, did you send these guys? And and they have this council, and they decide, look, no, we're not going to force circumcision on anybody. It's like, look, he points out the hypocrisy. Again, we we saw this before. They, they preach this circumcision, they preach this, but they don't even keep the law themselves. They don't keep the law that they themselves promote. Again, it's all for show. It is all for show. You remember when we were in Romans, in Romans chapter 2, and Paul, who is laying out the charges against all of humanity, in chapter 1 he lays out the charges against those who are uh, more than likely Gentiles. And then when he starts in chapter 2, he's probably talking about Jewish people. He could be talking about more outwardly moral people versus the people in chapter 1 who are sort of outwardly immoral. But certainly when he gets down to chapter 2, verse 17 and following, he is specifically speaking about Jews. And again, all of this is in that section of Romans that is seeking to tell you no one keeps the law. Even the Jew who thinks he's keeping the law does not keep the law. So in Romans 2, verse 17, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? It's like if you're teaching the law, do you, do you not know the law? Do you not know what it says? Do you not know what it demands of you? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then here he kind of brings it to a close in Romans 2. For a circumcision indeed is of value, or sorry, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. All right, it's like if you're going to take the mark of circumcision, the only way it's valuable to you is if you keep the law. All of it. 100%. From this day forward. From the day of your birth forward. But if you break the law, your circumcision, well, it's, it's useless. It becomes uncircumcision, which is just a way of saying it's useless. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. But have um, you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And then here's the, really the main point. But for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, look, you're boasting in this fleshly mark, and it, it does nothing to help you keep the law. It does nothing to promote righteousness. You need to be circumcised in the heart. You need to be a Jew inwardly, not one outwardly. So Paul's final warning here to the, to the Galatians boils down to this. Don't fall back into the trap of legalism. Legalism is a pit from which it is, one cannot easily escape because it appeals to our flesh. We are... We are hardwired for works. We want to work. We want to earn. We want to merit. That is in our makeup. And Paul says you cannot do that. You cannot earn. You cannot merit. So if you fall into that pit, it's hard to get out of that pit. Don't go back. That's the whole point. Don't go back. And that's why he emphasizes freedom. You've been set free. You've been set free from the hamster wheel, right, of works. You've been set free from this thing in which you think you can earn righteousness, but you can't. Don't go back to it. Don't take that yoke of slavery upon yourself again. And if you go back, if you follow the Judaizers, basically you're going back into a soul-crushing way of life of doubt and eventual death. As you'll never, because that doubt will always be there, right? If, you're, if you are working for your salvation, there's always going to be that doubt in the back of your head. Have I done enough? Have I kept enough law? Have I, you know, have I prayed enough? Have I given enough? Have I done this enough? And the answer to that question is no, and you never will. <laughs> That's why we believe in Christ who has done enough. All right, final encouragements, verses 14 through 18. So he moves from, on to his final encouragements, and he begins with contrasting the boast in verse 13 with the boast in verse 14. So those, they boast in the flesh, but, favorite word, Paul says here, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which or by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision 
counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So instead of boasting in their flesh, both literally in the circumcision and physically in their works, Paul wants to boast or he wants to glory in, that word can mean both things, he wants to glory in the cross of Christ. Paul has said this many times in many places. 1 Corinthians, he talks about how I resolved to preach nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's also what he wants to boast in. The cross, right, we talked about this before, the cross is a symbol of execution. Right? It's a, it's a before, before Jesus died on the cross, if you said cross, you would think that is a gruesome form of execution. Right? It's a gruesome, painful form, humiliating form of execution in which the Romans would hang the worst criminals because it was the most humiliating way to die. After the resurrection, the cross now becomes a symbol of hope, a symbol of, of peace between God and man, a symbol of reconciliation, a symbol of the fact that God and man now stand reconciled. It represents everything that is precious to the Christian. It is through the cross that we are justified. It is through the cross we are sanctified. It is through the cross we are glorified. Now he's, making, he's being hyperbolic when he says, I just want to boast in the cross. He's trying to make a point. In other words, the only thing worthy of boasting in is not my fleshly works. It's not my circumcision. It's not how many people I convert to circumcision. My Boasting, the only thing worthy of my boasting is Jesus, his person, and his work. That's why that's all Paul wanted to preach. He wanted to preach Christ. He would have, he would have probably made a much better living had he preached works. <laughs> right? right? That's what he says. I wouldn't, have been I wouldn't have been persecuted if I preached circumcision. Right? He wouldn't have been persecuted if he preached works. Just, you know, I mean... It sounds weird, but if you tell people this is what you got to do to be saved, somehow that tickles their ears, and they're like, okay. But if you tell them you can't do anything to be saved, you have to trust in Christ, while that is ultimately liberating, it sounds weird to fleshly ears. He wants to boast in Christ, his person and his work. Boasting in our flesh before God is like boasting how dirty our filthy rags are. <laughs> right? That's what Isaiah says. He says, all my works are as a filthy garment. And if you're going to boast in your works, that's sort of like saying, look, God, look how filthy my rags are. Look how filthy my garment is. And God's like, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty rancid. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Uh, you want to bring that to me? You want to think about this again? Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, far be it for me to boast in anything but the Lord, right? If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord that you know him. Paul says the same thing at the end of 1 Corinthians. Paul in Philippians 3, when he's comparing his life before the cross, he boasted in a lot of things. Paul boasted in all of his works. He boasted in his resume. He boasted in the fact that he was circumcised the eighth day. He boasted that he was a born a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he boasted in all of that. And a lot of those things he had no say in, right? I mean, 
He had no say where he was born, to whom he was born. (laughs) But he boasted in it. It's like, I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Benjaminite. You know, and, and, and then he boasted in his, in, his, in his works. I was a Pharisee. I was a persecutor of the church. I did all these things. And then he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, then he said, all my boasting, I realized, was worthless. Everything I held dear, everything I held precious was worthless. And then he says, and that's good. <laughs> that's good because I couldn't bring that to God anyway. So I'm like, I, oh, the only thing I want to boast in is I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on, it is through the cross of Christ that Paul here has been crucified to the world and the world to him. The end of verse 14. This speaks of dying to this world, dying to this age, and carrying one's cross. We, Paul said this earlier, chapter 2, verse 20, that great verse there, for I have been crucified with Christ. Union with Christ. Our, my union with Christ is such that when he died on the cross, I was there with him. And now I no longer live, Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I live because I've been raised to newness of life with him, now the life I live in this flesh, this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified to this world because I've been united to Christ who was also crucified to this world. Or chapter 5, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, put it to death with his passions and desires. I'm dead to this world. I'm dead. Now, this does, not, this does not make light of the struggle that we have in the flesh, where he says that in chapter 5, verse 16, or 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. So he's not saying just because you've been crucified to this world, you are free from the struggle. But the point is that there's a part of you now that is not of this creation anymore. There's a part of you now that is, as he says, new creation. The only thing that matters, his singular focus, is new creation. This is is Paul's way of speaking of the age to come. Uh, The new creation is is the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation uh, chapter 21. But he's saying that in in our conversion, in our being born again, new creation is sort of broken in into this age. Again, we have that overlap, the already not yet. Part of that age is broken into this world now in the people who are in Christ because we are now ourselves new creations. We are fit. We are ready for the age to come. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old man, the old life, the old way of doing things is gone. It's dead. It's dying. And in the believer, that new life, that new way is inaugurated. It has begun. As Philippians 1.6 says, that new creation will be complete on the day of Jesus Christ. And then we get this somewhat rather 
enigmatic statement in verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule, the rule of crucifying the world, being new creation, walking by the Spirit, uh, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The troublesome phrase there is the Israel of God. Um, you know, some will say, well, Israel means Israel, the church means the church, but if you have a covenantal, redemptive, historical way of understanding the Bible, this phrase is not troublesome at all because the church is the Israel of God. That's what Paul has been saying all along here, right? Chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, where he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Israel is, is what, right? Israel was a name given to Jacob when he wrestled with God, right? So the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, are sons of Abraham by the flesh. That's the whole point. Paul here is saying, but it is those who are faith who are the sons of Abraham. Physical descent from Abraham, while you know, effective for the Mosaic Covenant, effective for living in the land, is not what brings uh, eternal life. It is those who are of faith. The promise is to those who are of faith, not those who are of the flesh. So know then, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. And then verse 29, of course, of that chapter. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We saw Romans 2, verses 28, the Jew is not the one who is one outwardly, but the one who is one inwardly. And the whole idea of chapter 4, particularly verses 21 through 31, show that if you are a child of the slave woman, if you are a child of Hagar, that's physical Israel, that's physical Jerusalem, that's the old covenant. You have to be a child of the free woman. And then he tells the Galatians at the end of that chapter, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Children of Abraham by faith. It's... It's, it's an idea of an expansion, right? The people of God is no longer resigned and, and confined to a nation. It is now expanded. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, that wall of separation has been torn down, and now he takes the two men and makes one new man in Christ. Those who are born again by the Holy Spirit, not circumcised in the flesh, those who are circumcised in the heart, as Paul will say in Second Corinthians, or sorry, in Colossians 2. You have to have the circumcision that is made without hands. Baptism being a sign of that, of course. So the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, are those who are sons of Abraham by faith. And he says, this blessing be upon you. Those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you. Then he closes with a somewhat confrontational warning to those who want to cause him trouble. He carries the, he says, uh, I carry the marks of Christ, the stigma, um, not the stigmata, okay? If, you, if you're aware of that concept, uh, you know, the stigmata are the, you know, the, the nail-pierced hands and the feet. 
No, what he's saying here, this word stigma often has a, uh, uh, is related to a slave's brand, the mark that you would put on a slave. And he says, when I carry the mark of Christ, I carry the fact that I am a servant, I am a slave of Christ. And he's also been persecuted, right? He, you know, he all, he'll say in another place that, you know, I fill up in my body what is lacking in the persecutions of Christ. He carries the marks of Christ, a slave's brand, a slave's mark. And then he closes with benedictory words in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So those are Paul's final words, but I have a few final words myself. Not that I'm going to add to Paul. <laughs> that the, my words are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, so I'm just taken with a grain of salt. But uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, like all of Scripture, serves a very, very important function in Christian thought and life. Um, all Scripture, of course, is God-breathed. All Scripture is, is profitable. And Galatians has its part in all of that. But the book of Galatians, of course, is all about the centrality of the gospel of Christ and our freedom that we have in Christ. It begins with, do not let anyone preach a different gospel. And it ends with, brothers, we are free in Christ. The law, not a bad thing, as good as it is, being God's law. The problem with the law is that it's powerless. It has no power to justify. It has no power to make you obey it. That's Paul's point. He's not saying law evil. He's saying law is powerless. The law has no power to give you to keep it. The law had a purpose for the people of God of old. It led them to Christ. It was the guardrails that pointed them to Christ. It was their tutor when they were immature, when they were young. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under that law, born of a woman. The, uh, the point of the law has been fulfilled in Christ. He fulfills the law, both in his works and in his, in his person, he fulfills the law as well. And then that law, that law keeping is given to us by faith. It's imputed to us. Thus we are now free from the law's yoke of slavery. We are free. Not free to indulge the flesh, as he says in chapter 5, verse 13, but free now to walk by the Spirit. Free now to obey. Free now to know that even though we may not obey perfectly, to know that that condemnation no longer rests on us. And this sanctification now, which is so important to the Christian life, also comes by faith. It comes, by walking through the, it comes through walking by the Spirit. It comes through loving one another. And we are going to struggle with this, brothers and sisters, beloved. We are going to struggle with this walking by the Spirit. We are still in the flesh. Though we are a new creation, we are still in the flesh. We're going to struggle with this. That's why Paul says, when you see a brother struggling and stumbling, you help them. You help them bear that burden. You show love toward one another. So we are the Israel of God. Do not allow troublers to steal from you the freedom that we have in Christ. We are always going to struggle and wrestle with the world. We're going to struggle with the flesh, the devil. Remember your freedom in Christ. Remember and do not fall back into legalistic slavery. Hence my encouragement to you is read Galatians often. Revisit Galatians. Come back to it. 
This book was instrumental in the recovery of the gospel during the Reformation. It was through his study of this book that Luther launched into the Reformation. Right When he saw the gospel so clearly displayed, and when he saw how the gospel had been obscured by the church in his day, his eyes were open. And he said, it was as if I was born again and entered into the gates of heaven. So we need the gospel. We need the gospel daily. The gospel is for believers too. It's not just for the unbelievers, it's for believers as well. So just one more gospel encouragement before we go. Uh, Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And in chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So that's all I have as far as Galatians goes. Next week, Ephesians.